this portion that we're looking at this morning, Isaiah 63, was not what I had planned to preach today. Yesterday I thought, I know what I'm preaching. And then in my own readings, I was reading through and finishing up Isaiah, his prophecy, and I was struck by a portion that's here in chapter 63. And I thought, you know, it'd be great to preach that someday. <laughs> and forgot. And I woke up at 6 o'clock this morning. I couldn't get this passage out of my mind. And so I just felt, this is the word for this morning. This is what the Lord would have us to bring. So we're here in Isaiah 63 in, a, in some way planned. It was not my intention. In fact, tonight I'll preach what I intended to preach uh, this morning. We are in Isaiah 63. Let us take time to read all of the chapter and to hear the Lord's word as it is before us here. Isaiah 63 verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thine garments like him that treadeth in the winefat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord, and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within them, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep, as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble? As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? 
Return for thy servants' sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Amen. Trust the Lord will bless the very reading of his precious and infallible word. It has been our privilege to hear his word read to us this morning. Let us pray. Let's still our hearts before the Lord. Our Father, we do thank thee for all that has preceded this particular point for the singing and praise of thy people. We thank thee also for their giving. And we pray that thou wilt provide all the needs of this congregation. We pray that even in the practical realm that thou wilt cause the giving to sustain the work that thou wilt meet all the demands that there are here. We pray, O God, that thou wilt now cause thy word to come with power and freshness to the heart. Let it be a word in season. Lord, this is something that no preacher can do. It's one thing to bring a sermon. It's one th- another thing to hear a message. And so we pray that the Spirit of God will take our meditation, take our considerations, and come with power and encourage us and uplift our souls around thy precious word. Hear us. Bless us, be with us, minister to us, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The chapter that we have before us, at least in the opening part of chapter 63 of Isaiah's prophecy, shows to us something of the constant contrast that there is between God's justice and God's mercy. The very first verse makes reference to the Lord as Savior, as the deliverer of his people. You can see that in the very image that is presented before us. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty. A text that would cry out to be preached in and of itself. In context, of course, that time where the Lord is speaking to his people in relation to the fact that the Babylonians would be delivered they be delivered from the Babylonians by the hand of Cyrus and Cyrus the Persian leader would come in and be really the Lord's servant in delivering his people. While it is that meaning and has that relationship to the context as they would have read it in that time yet it has a future image for us, a future significance for us as we realize the true meaning of the text and what the Lord is indicating to his people. That Cyrus, like so much that happened in the Old Testament era, was just another type, another way of the Lord relating to his people what he ultimately wants to do for them. Cyrus would come as a deliverer, as a kind of Messiah, but he would not be the true Messiah. He would not be the one that would ultimately deliver his people. And so really the imagery of anyone that is looked to, and this is the same when you go back and you see the judges or you see Moses or whoever it is, they're all just in type and shadow pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And where we see them in their strengths, we can learn something in a shadow form of what we can see in our Lord Jesus Christ. And where we see them in their failures, we see the reminder of the fact that they cannot be the Savior that we're looking for. This person cannot be the one that is to deliver us because they do have faults. They do have failures and they are not therefore able to utterly and completely save the people of God. So the Lord Jesus is truly this one who comes in his greatness and in his strength. 
And you can see his apparel, verse 2, where he's red in his apparel and his garments, like him that treadeth in the wine fat. Here we see a tremendous image of the Lord in his sufferings on our behalf, going through the judgment of God on behalf of all of his people. And beloved, never lose sight of that. The Lord Jesus, here we have depicted for us, is a suffering servant of Jehovah. He treads out the wine fat. He goes through the wine press on behalf of his people. Verse 3, I have trodden the wine press alone. This is the Lord. There is none to help, none that can aid, none that can contribute to the work of salvation. It is only through Christ that the people of God can look. As Peter would declare in Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Christ had to do the work on his own. And of the people there was none with me, none that could help, none that could support. Even the Lord Jesus himself experienced this, did he not? When all of his disciples forsook him and fled, and they ran from him, even after having declared that they would stand with him. And Peter, with, with oaths, was saying, No, no, though all forsake thee, I will not. There's no way I will ever leave you. But he did. He did. You see, man is incapable of always keeping his word and being true and has not the power to save. And so the Lord had to go to the cross very much alone on his own. I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. Here is Christ dealing with the enemies of the people of God. He came to destroy the works of the devil, the Bible tells us. He came to deal with that which would damn our souls and he deals with it on his own. And he does it in order to purchase salvation for us. And this is the glorious truth of the gospel. But you see in it, while there's mercy, mercy to those who, res who reap the benefits of his work, there's also judgment in the language. And so you see the justice of God, sin must be punished, the enemies of God must be judged. And of course in this time and season, the Lord is saying that the enemies of the Lord's people will be dealt with. Verse 4, the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed has come. There's going to be this expression of vengeance, of dealing with the enemies, of dealing with that which keeps the people of God from their God. Verse 5 says, I looked and there was none to help and I wondered there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me and my fury it upheld me. So you have, again, a mixture of a sense of justice and judgment as well as mercy and tenderness, as the Lord does everything necessary to win his people. In both cases, we say the Lord is good. The Lord is good. To the people of God, to say the Lord is good goes without saying. He is good because of what he has done for me. He is good because of what Christ has accomplished on my behalf. He is good. And we can say that across the board in relation to everything we know about our God. But he is also good in the fact that he is a faithful judge. He is good in, fact, in the fact that we know that all of his enemies will be put under the feet of Christ. And we know that not one of them will be missed. And God will faithfully execute judgment upon all. He will not miss nor misjudge in relation to those that are the enemies of the Lord's people. And so we can say even there that he is good. And to the unsaved, to the unconverted to those not born of the Spirit, to say that God is good is a terrifying reality. It is terrifying because God, being good, must therefore and will judge their sins. 
But it is verse 9 that I want us to focus upon where I was struck by the compassion and mercy and understanding and blessing that the Lord has and shows towards his people in this text. In all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. We might simply entitle this a complete saviour. A complete saviour. Because having the Lord as the one who has delivered us from our sins, seeing him in the imagery that precedes coming with his garments dyed in blood and in the greatness of his strength and he is mighty to save, verse 1 says, seeing him there saving his people, redeeming his people, gathering his people in is a tremendous truth. The year of my redeemed has come. The Lord is here on behalf of his people. And we can say, yes, he is my saviour. He is the one who has delivered me from my sins. He has has dealt mercifully with me as an individual. But what about all the other needs? What about all my other concerns? What about where we find ourselves present as a congregation? Does the Lord care about this? Does he care that we have no pastor at present? Does he care that we have no idea what's going to happen in the future? Does, does he care about all the concerns and worries that you may have in relation to your participation in this flock and what the future holds in relation to it? Does the Lord care? Well, as I say, he is a complete saviour. He's not just concerned. He is not solely concerned about giving you a ticket to heaven. He is concerned about the whole, the whole, all of the needs of his people, all their worries, all their fears, all of their concerns are his. There are a number of things to see from this tremendous text in Isaiah 63 verse 9. Note with me first then his comprehension. His comprehension. Because it says, in all their affliction he was afflicted. In all their affliction He was afflicted. Often the Lord's people go through times of affliction and times of adversity. It is not uncommon. And we read the 34th Psalm this morning. And part of that Psalm reflects the fact that that we are a people that experience affliction. And yet the Lord delivers us out of them all. We are a people that are constantly in a sense, in a state of battle, in a conflict. This is why the church here on earth is referred to as the church militant. We aren't finished in the battle. We aren't over in terms of of what we are to face and the hardships of being still in a world that is cursed by the fall. It is a reality we try to wish away. And of course in our present day whenever so many things have changed and there's been dramatic shifts in relation to the practical experiences of life here upon the earth. I was just reading, I, I don't know if I can recall the statistic that was given, but something to, something that related, like, like a quarter, a quarter of those born, like just a hundred years ago or so, a quarter of those born would be dead by the time they're five. So you'd have like 20, 25% uh, death rate of those who were born just, just a century ago, something like that anyway, and now it's like half a percent. I mean, there's been a massive shift even in things, sorrows that were understood and experienced over and over again just a, just a handful of generations ago. 
And yet now we don't experience them to the same degree. We don't go through them with the same frequency. It was not uncommon to have you know, 10, 15 children and only have half of them reach adulthood or even less. The great preacher Samuel Rutherford, that I'm sure many of you have heard about, and I can certainly commend his letters to you for your own edification and encouragement. Samuel Rutherford, I think, if I recall correctly, had nine children. Had nine. And he outlived all of them bar two. These were common sorrows, common difficulties, common afflictions. But even with all the advancements medically and all the changes that have occurred in relation to hygiene and all the things that once would have taken so many lives in a very real way no longer being at least to the same degree a problem here in the West and in developed areas, at the same time it's still a battle in which we face. And we, we imagine ourselves because we're, we are so insulated by many of the sorrows that others would have experienced in a bygone day, we think... You know, the American dream is everyone's right and ease and joy and privilege and happiness is our pursuit and we, we don't need to worry about anything else. We can just pursue the joys of our own hearts. And yet the Lord has adversity for all. We have the common adversities just like other people. The afflictions that all our neighbors experience. But the Lord's people have their own peculiar adversities and difficulties as well. The challenge of taking in the name of Christ and being bold as a Christian in this day. This is a particular adversity because the world wants nothing to do with the bold Christian and wants to silence the church. And we have other adversities. The adversities that a, a loving Father in heaven brings upon his people. We all know of those children that are never disciplined and never receive any discipline or firm instruction from their parents and if you can just imagine for a minute the di distinction that would be for that child versus another child in the neighborhood in the playground at school who has a father who actually disciplines him imagine they had a conversation imagine what it would be like one child is is spared many of the afflictions many of the the the, the, the chastening experiences and the other one goes through chastening experiences. And yet you look at it and we know, we know that the one that's being chastened lovingly and carefully is the one that is most cared for. And this is the experience again. There's, there's added afflictions that the Lord prescribes for his people in order to purify our hearts and make us be more conformed to the image of his son. Whenever we go through our times of adversity, however, we are prone to particular satanic attacks. Specifically, we become prone to attacks that lead us to think differently about God. We begin to wonder whether or not God is fair. We imagine that God may have abandoned us, that he doesn't care about us, or that he is punishing us. And all these things are untrue. And yet with adversity we can begin to allow those things to set in. And that is a danger for this congregation. Does the Lord care? We will be like the disciples in the midst of the storm on the ship. And it's billowing against us. And we have this, this, this deep rising concern that we're going to perish on the sea. And the Lord Jesus is there sleeping as if he's not concerned at all. And we come to him. And we cry, carest thou not that we perish? 
Do you not care, Lord? And yet he cared. Of course he cared. And he arises and speaks the word and brings silence and peace. And in just a moment, everyone's wondering, what was all the fuss about? He had no concern. Why should we be concerned? Why should we express anxiety when the Lord of heaven and earth has no anxiety about anything and has promised to take care of us? Even in that very context, is that not the time when he said, let us go over to the other side? And yet they're worried, they're they're concerned about the fact that they're ever going to reach the other side. But the Lord's in control. He knows exactly what he is doing. Well, we can feel like the Lord doesn't care, or we can feel like the Lord has abandoned us, or we can feel like he is punishing us. And all of these are untrue thoughts. When we read this word, in all their affliction he was afflicted, it's a tremendous reminder of the fact that the Lord Jesus took upon himself our humanity. No one can afflict God like we are afflicted. God himself is not able to go through the experiences we go through, for God is spirit. And there's much, there's much in relation to God that, that causes us to be at a distance from him, and there's a, a lack of relation that is there. And yet, as Hebrews 2 points out, if you turn over there just for a moment, Hebrews chapter 2, you will see that because the Lord Jesus took upon himself our humanity, that he experiences much of what we experience here upon the earth as flesh and blood creatures. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's read verse 9. or Maybe read a few verses here from verse 9. Hebrews 2, verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. That's just another way of saying he was made in a human form. He was given a body. He was made to be a man. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That's the purpose, so that he might suffer death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. Now here's the deity of Christ. Here's the glory of his person. All things are made by him. All things are for him. But in bringing many sons to glory, he was made the captain of their salvation. And he he did that through sufferings, being made perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now this goes back to the point that's made. He's made a little lower than the angels. He is made like unto us, and therefore he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Now it seems, and indeed we might say it is blasphemous to say that God is like unto men. But whenever the Son of God takes the form of man, when he takes our humanity, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, he now is not ashamed to say, my brethren. Verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Quoting from the Old Testament here, I'll not make any application. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
And you can see verse 16 just hammering it home. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The Lord takes our form. And that is how he can experience what we experience. That's what the text is saying. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. It is indicating him taking on our form, becoming man, becoming flesh and dwelling among us so that he could be the sympathizing son of God, the high priest of his people. And in all their affliction, he would be afflicted. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. You can see a wonderful illustration of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ after his ascension to heaven. Acts chapter 9. This chapter gives us the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later called Paul the Apostle. And we read from verse 3 that as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now if you just stop for a moment and think about what the Lord Jesus is communicating. You're persecuting me, Saul. The question needs to be asked, How? He is in heaven at this stage, ascended to the right hand of the Father. How can it be said that Jesus is being persecuted by the efforts of Saul of Tarsus? And this, beloved, is understanding the the unity there is, the union that exists between the Lord and his people. Saul was going from house to house persecuting the saints. Saul's whole effort was to bring them in so that they would be imprisoned and even put to death. Saul had no time for those that named the name of Christ. And he was literally the the ISIS of 2,000 years ago, endeavoring to end Christian existence. And the Lord meets with him and says, You, you're persecuting me. Every time you lay your finger upon one of mine, you're persecuting me. And that's what the text is reflecting. Isaiah 63 verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted. Beloved you don't go through one experience of sorrow. Without the Lord going through it with you. There's nothing. Even when you're criticized for your Christian faith. The Lord is the one that's ultimately criticized. When you're condemned. When you're cast aside. When people think ill of you. When people have nothing good to say about you. Or you go through any physical infirmity or sorrow of heart in this life, the Lord is afflicted in your affliction. This also applies even in the positive. Remember whenever the Lord talked about in Matthew 25, the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left, and he made reference to the fact that, you know, why are those those that are entering into everlasting life and those that go into hell prepared for the devil and his angels? And he spoke there about, you know, uh, whenever whenever there was one that was thirsty they gave to drink and one that was hungered they gave him to feed and so on and in prison you visited me and they, the question was when did we do this when saw we thee and hungered and, and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink and as much as you did it unto the least of these my brethren you did it unto me the Lord is in such a union with his people 
so that whenever we even minister to one another, we're ministering unto Christ. This is the understanding of the body of Christ. The people of God are one body, many members. But if I minister to you, I'm ministering to Christ. This is why Paul found it so difficult, so difficult, and felt a real sense of tension in Philippians chapter 1. And he spoke of, he had a desire to depart to be with Christ, but it was more needful for him to remain and be with the church. It was not that he in some way had a a, a light view of the Lord. He loved the Lord with all of his heart. He loved the Lord like few ever have. And yet, it was not for him to love the Lord. It was to love his people. That, That there should be no distinction between the love we have for Christ and the love we have for Christians. If they are truly the Lord's people, they are part of the Lord. This is why it's such a horrendous thing to, to despise the brethren. It's such an awful crime and why it's made plain that if you hate your brother, the love of God is not in you, John says. There has to be a love for the brethren because every member of the body is a part or in union with Christ to such a degree that as I serve them, I am serving the Lord himself. And that's why Paul, understanding this, he could see no difference in the appeal to go to heaven And the need to stay on the earth. As I'm here I'm serving Christ. His body is left on the earth. I'm serving him just as much here. As I would be in heaven. Although there it would be with an unsinning heart. In all their affliction he was afflicted. Never forget it child of God. He is afflicted. He truly knows what it is to be afflicted. And he is going with you through this particular valley. This time of uncertainty, however you may be processing it, he is there. He has a comprehension of exactly where you are as he holds your hand and walks with you through this experience. Secondly, his companionship. Look with me again at the text. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. The angel of his presence saved them. Of course, the context here is going back to the time of the Israelites being in Egypt and then their uh, following from there, the deliverance of the Lord on their behalf, bringing them into the wilderness and promising them the, the promised land. And here we have this indication of his companionship with them. The Lord was with them wheresoever they went. And the Lord's presence was their comfort through all of the experience in the wilderness this was a blessing to them and something at times they took lightly and for granted but Moses Moses did not take it for granted if you go back to Exodus chapter 33 you'll see just how important it was to Moses that the Lord's presence be with them Exodus chapter 33 verse 12 Exodus Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. Thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee, 
and I will give thee rest. So Moses is looking for indication that the Lord is still with them. And the promise is, you'll have my presence. And verse 15 then says, And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So we are, the Lord here indicates, my presence will go with you. Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with you, I don't even want to take another step forward. I'm not interested in, interested in proceeding. Indeed, this is the indication that we are your people, that we're separated, that we're made distinct from the other nations. It is because the Lord is with us. Now this, this sense, this, this truth of the Lord's presence being with his people is carried right through the scriptures. From the book of Genesis right through to the very end. In fact, in those particular verses that relate to the fact that he will be our God and we will be his people and he will dwell with them and walk with them, you will find passages that relate that. Leviticus chapter 26, you'll find it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter... Six or seven, I can't remember now if it's, I think it's maybe the end of chapter six or beginning of chapter seven of Second Corinthians. Right through to the very end of the chapter, the Lord is indicating this, this promise, this promise of his presence with them. And then it was revealed when the Lord himself was incarnate, when he said he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God is the distinctive characteristic of the people of God. It's the fact that he is with them that makes the difference. And here we read in our text, the angel of his presence saved them. The Lord was with them. And this, of course, speaks of the mediator, doesn't it? It reminds us that Christ is a mediator to his people. We have no right into the presence of God. You have absolutely no merit to stand before God in his holiness and in his glory. None. You ought to be burned up to think that you could come into the presence of God. So how can you enjoy the presence of God except by a mediator, the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus? And he is the one that reconciles both together. He is the one that bridges the gap. He is the one that pulls the parties together and reconciles them through the blood of his cross. And it is by his presence then that we enjoy that which is distinct for the people of God. Because if you're not washed in the blood of Christ and your sins are not forgiven, you cannot know the presence of God and his redeeming love as reflected to his people alone. While the presence of God was something that was often sought for and experienced in the Old Testament, it receives a lot of focus in the New Testament as well. Turn with me just for a moment to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Now again, the context of John 14 the Lord has just revealed that he is going to leave them. And they're not going to be able to follow him. He tells, us, he tells them that in chapter 13, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. So just as I told them, that they cannot come. I think that might be back in John 8. John 7 or John 8. And now he is saying it again to them. I'm going somewhere and you cannot come. 
Now this brings tremendous grief and sorrow. These men had left all to follow the Lord. Their belief was that this is the Son of God, the Christ of God. This is God's presence. This is the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. This is the Lord in their midst. And should he depart, the fear is, we are now devoid of the presence of God. And for a Jew, this is, would be the worst experience. And so they have tremendous concern. And the Lord can read it. When we come to chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord reads exactly what they're experiencing on the basis of these words. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. I've said I'm going away. And immediately you can see the anxiety grip their hearts. And so you go through John 14. And what is the emphasis? The emphasis is, though I'm going, you will not be devoid of the presence of God. You will not. And so we read in verse 16, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And the Greek word there, another, indicates it's another of the same kind. Another of the same quality. It's not deficient, it's not less. Another comforter, another advocate, we could read it. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. The world can't know the presence of God, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. You can see the emphasis on the presence of God. And you read on down. You come to verse 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The presence of God. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Lord emphasizes before he leaves, they are not going to be devoid of the presence of God. The Spirit is going to come and abide with them forever. And so, the Lord is with His people. And He would emphasize again after His death, and after His resurrection, when He would say that, when He would command them to go into all the world, and He would send them into all nations, He would say, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I'm never going to leave you, ever. You will always know my presence this is his companionship beloved and he will be with you through these days these weeks these months these years whatever it may be he will be with you he will not leave you comfortless he will not leave you alone the angel of his presence saved them the angel of his presence what a difference it is when the lord is with his people the angel of his presence it's the only thing we need that's what moses understood i don't need an army I don't need a well-trained military uh, army to be, to be here and to preserve the people. All I need is, if thy presence go not with us, we must have your presence, Lord. And this should be the craving, the desire, the longing of our hearts. And let us just say, not just the longing of our hearts, 
but it is our blood-bought right. If you're a child of God, you have the presence of God. Now, it can be felt and it can be known to a greater degree. Our sins can grieve the Spirit. We are told that in the New Testament. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. We're not to quench the Holy Spirit. And we can do that and then make ourselves to feel like we are devoid of the Lord. And He will withdraw His felt presence from us. What you need at this time is to seek for that felt presence. His presence save them. Does this church need to be saved? Saved from its fears? Saved from wondering whether it will fold? Or, you know, I don't know exactly what's going through your mind. I've told and expressed to you my absolute confidence in the Lord that He will sustain and He will preserve. And if there's a people here that are called by His name and love Him and seek from Him the blessings that are ours in Christ and that He has promised to give pastors, teachers for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the saints... Let us appeal to heaven that he will bring the need of the hour. His presence saved them. This is his companionship. Thirdly, his compassion. We see his compassion also in his love and in his pity he redeemed them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. What compassion. What can be said about the love of God? It is beyond understanding. It is far too great for us to begin to grasp. But I'll ask you to turn with me again to John, and this time to chapter 15. John chapter 15. And I read a text there that shows something of the Lord's love. How much did the Father love the Son? How much does the Father love the Son. Jesus says in John 15 verse 9, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Again I say it is beyond words to try and understand the depth of the Lord's love. But the Father loved the Son with a perfect love. The testimony of heaven at His baptism at the commencement of His ministry is, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There could not be any greater love. In fact, the only reason we understand love is because we're made in the image of God. God Himself is Love, the existence of love finds its root in the eternal existence of God Himself. And there was an eternal love expressed between the Godhead in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always in perfect love and harmony. And when Jesus came to the earth, that love did not diminish at all. The Father loved the Son. And as the Father loved the Son with the same deep, everlasting, unflinching, un unchangeable love so have I loved you in fact there's a lovely little text that you find at the head of chapter 13 of John's gospel that I, I just love it I love it because not just what it says but the way it is put in and the context of it because John 13 is where the Lord reveals first Judas one of you will dip 
and receive supper or whatever and what he says there about Judas and indicating the one who's going to betray him. But later on the disciples are told that they're going to leave him, forsake him. As we've said already, they, they appeal that this is not the, not the case. But we read through the passage and we learn indeed it is the case. And if we got to that point, if you take out verse 1 of chapter 13, you read and you, and you say, you see that this is what the Lord predicts and this is what happens. Our question is going to be, does he still love them? Does he still love them with the way, in the way that he loved them before? Having betrayed him or having forsaken him. Having denied him with oaths and with cursing. So John interjects this little piece of information, a parenthetical statement essentially, before we read of the utter failure of the Lord's people. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended and so on. He just puts this little truth in. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John knows the end. John's aware as to how this all falls out. But as the reader reads the development of the scene, the question is going to arise, did the Lord still love them after they did what they did? And John's saying, look, I don't even want you going down that path even to think it, even to think that there was a change in the love of Christ would be blasphemous. I don't want you to even imagine it. And so he puts the statement in there. Don't even think it for a second. Having loved his own, which were in the world, yes, of course we expect him to love those that are in heaven. We expect him to love them. They're perfected in holiness. But here we are with our sins, our denials of the Lord, our betrayals, our are full, full of reasons and arguments as to why Christ should not love us. And you may sit there and think, God forbid even your mind would go back to the past and say, did we do something wrong? Is it our sin as a congregation? Have we done something to drive a pastor away, to change our circumstances, to put us in this place? Is this some fault of ours? Does the Lord therefore now not love us? Don't, don't entertain it for a second. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. If there's one thing you can be sure about, it's the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we read, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knows every way you're going to fail him. <laughs> And he knows all the things that will cause you sorrow and all the disappointments that you will bring in terms of your inconsistent Christian living. But he has no regrets. He sets his love upon sinners and he never has any regret about it. He has total compassion for his people. That brings us then fourthly to see his comfort his comfort, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Oh, how he bare them and carried them, carried the children of Israel in their wanderings through the wilderness, carried them right to the very end and 
into the promised land. And the Lord will carry you. The Lord will carry you through the difficult days, the uncertain days, and a future that is still to be written as far as we are concerned. Yet, He will bear you and carry you all the days. He will. It is the Lord's delight to carry His people. He loves to carry His people. He doesn't find it... You know, if you've ever worked in a place of employment, in a place where sometimes there might be a little bit of what we would call dead wood, and there's some there that don't seem to carry their weight, they don't uh, do everything that they should be doing, and you're having to cover them, and you're having to you know, do added work in order to do what they should be doing, and so on. It happens. It happens. Every business has its inefficiencies, and someone has to pull up, pick up the slack. And you may resent it and get upset, and there's a legitimate reason why you should, because it's unfair, especially if you're both getting paid the same, and he's not doing his work, and you're having to pick up the slack. It doesn't seem to be just, and you can get upset and angry about that. The Lord, however, never, never resents carrying his people. He loves to carry his people. In Luke chapter 15, we are told of this very familiar parable. And the Lord reflects it in a number of ways. But in Luke 15, we are told in verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. That was a derision. They were seeking to show something negative about the Lord Jesus. This man received the sinners. Like it was something that was wrong for him to do. You have this great rabbi, you're all going to listen to him. He receives sinners. He associates with sinners. And the Lord responds in the most wonderful, gracious way that you can even... You, again, you read this and just... I trust the Lord grips your heart with this. Because what the Lord says essentially is... You have no idea. You have no idea. <laughs> I don't just receive sinners. I go after them. I seek them out. I enter into their company and I carry them in all their needs. That's what he goes on to say. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. Rejoicing. He finds joy in finding that one lost sheep. And when he cometh home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And what the Lord is saying here is, I, will, I go after them. I, I don't just receive them. I actually go after sinners. I'm here for that purpose. Did you not hear me when I said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost? That his whole purpose is to redeem? That that's the reason why I'm on the earth. Not just to receive sinners and eat with them, but to gather them in, to go after them, to hunt them down and bear them on and carry them into heaven itself. They can't carry themselves. They can't save themselves. I'm here to do that for them. And he does it with joy. 
He does it with joy. That's the amazing thing. People read Luke 15 and they imagine that, oh, there's joy in heaven. And they think, the angels rejoice when a sinner is saved. Well, that may be true. But that is not what the text is saying. (laughs) I I sometimes wonder how people detach what's going on here. It's the shepherd that rejoices. The joy in the presence of the angels. That is, Christ in glory calling his people to himself enters in and commences the joy that he has in saving his people. And he calls, as it says here, he calls his friends and his neighbors, rejoice with me. Which I take to mean the Lord Jesus says to all the inhabitants of heaven, rejoice with me, another of mine elect is saved and gathered in. That he's the one rejoicing. He's the great choir leader in heaven calling us to rejoice in the salvation of souls. So he delights in it. He has no, no hesitation And while the Pharisees mocked him for it and derided him, he takes it as a great joy to gather souls in. This was what they didn't understand with their hard, proud hearts. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. I am glad that my salvation depends entirely upon Christ and his finished work. I am glad that he doesn't bring me to the very gate of heaven and leave me there to take the last few steps to stumble into heaven. Because... Sure as I'm standing here, I would fail even to do that last bit. He carries us into glory. He brings us into his presence. His work, as he said himself on the cross, is finished. And he will bear you along all the days of old. This is your Savior. As I say, he is a complete Savior. He will walk with you through these days. He is not just the one who has forgiven you your sins. But he is the one who continues to be with you every step of the journey. You do not need to question his love. You do not need to wonder whether or not he understands what you're going through. Again, read the entire text. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. It's good to have those that empathize. They're able to sit alongside us and understand what we're going through. This is Christ. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. What love this is. What mercy. And so do not be looking to me. I am not your saviour. <laughs> I will help you whatever way I can. But the Lord is the one who must be appealed to to carry the congregation, to lead in a unification of mind and heart. In coming days we trust that God will provide a man and give you a sense of unity as to who that man ought to be. And that he will give you a pastor after his own heart. A pastor like this. This is the pastor's work. In all the afflictions of the people of God to be afflicted. To be there for them. And with love and pity help them. And to carry them and bear them whatever way he can. We can't do it to the same degree the Lord does it. But that's why we're under shepherds. We don't have the ultimate job, but we are there to be with the people of God. But even in the absence of a pastor, the Lord is with you to carry you through. Do not doubt it. May the Lord give much grace in coming days. Let's bow together in prayer.
Our Father, we're thankful for thy word. We're thankful that it is a living word. And it is continually a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path. The way ahead may be dark, but we pray that each child of God here will step into the light that the word of God shines upon in the midst of the darkness. We pray that each heart would be shepherded by thy word and that each child of God would enjoy thy sweet presence. Give grace to us all. We pray that thou wilt lead and that thou wilt guide. We ask even at this early point that thou wilt cause us to understand the will of God for the future. That thou wilt bring a man of thy choosing to be the pastor after thine own heart for this people. Until that time comes, we pray for stickability. We pray that thou wilt carry us and bear us along all the days. And that this little flock may even not just be sustained, but this little flock may grow and be strengthened by the power of thy spirit. Gather in those that are in the neighborhood. Bring perhaps even back those that have left in the past. And grant, O God, that thou wilt minister graciously and support every aspect of the work. Every need, Lord, practical, spiritual, we pray that thou wilt help and support the work of God here. We thank thee for this time. Receive our praise and thanks for it. And be with us through the afternoon hours and cause us to return here again in the anticipation of blessing and to hear from thee, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.